Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello and welcome to the Federal Society's virtual event. This afternoon, March 24th, 2022, we discuss where's the beef, inflation at the grocery store and proposed regulatory responses. My name is Ryan Lacey and I'm an assistant director of practice groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of our experts on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have an excellent panel moderated by Judge Stephen Vaden, whom I will introduce briefly. Judge Vaden serves on the United States Court of International Trade following his confirmation by the United States Senate on November 18th, 2020, and his appointment by President Donald J. Trump. Before joining the court, Judge Vaden served as General Counsel of the United States Department of Agriculture. In private practice, Judge Vaden focused on election law, and he is a proud resident of the great state of Tennessee. After our speakers give their remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. We'll handle questions as we move towards the end of today's program. With that, thank you for being with us today. Judge Vaden, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Ryan, and thank you all for joining us here today, and thanks for the Federalist Society and providing this forum. Inflation has hit highs not seen in the last 40 years. Some observers, such as former Clinton administration Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summers, point to traditional explanations, like the rapid expansion of the money supply caused by repeated trillion-dollar COVID stimulus programs. Other observers, most notably the Biden administration, argue that an important contributor to the current rapid rate of inflation is the increasing concentration of market power in fewer corporate hands in key sectors of the economy. The Biden administration has targeted much of its early ire at the food and agricultural sectors, which coincidentally also represent Americans' most visible gauge of inflation with each trip to the grocery store, particularly with regard to meat prices. That brings us to today's panel, which will look at who is to blame for rising food prices and whether antitrust policy has a role to play in taming it alongside more traditional tools of monetary policy. We have three excellent experts joining us on today's program. And that's not only my opinion, that's the opinion of the Wall Street Journal, which quoted two of them in a front page article on this topic on Tuesday. So without any further ado, I'm going to introduce each of our panelists right before they speak. Each panelist will speak for about 10 to 12 minutes. And then I'll help them engage in a free exchange of ideas based on uh, the topics that they have chosen to speak on. And then we'll open it up to you, the viewer, for questions, when hopefully I can go to that Q&A box and pick out some of your questions and have our panelists address them. Our first panelist today is Mr. Joe Maxwell. Mr. Maxwell is co-founder of Farm Action. He focuses his work on a vision of an inclusive U.S. economy that works for all people. He's held key positions in both political and initiative petition campaigns. During the last election cycle, Mr. Maxwell assisted presidential, U.S. Senate, and U.S. House of Representative candidates in developing their antitrust, agriculture, and food policy positions. He holds degrees in agricultural economics and law from the University of Missouri. He has also served as a state legislator in Missouri 
and was elected as Missouri's Lieutenant Governor. Mr. Maxwell is also retired from the Army National Guard. He and his brother, uh, uh, Steve, are proud Missouri family farmers. Joe, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Judge. I appreciate the opportunity to be here today and want to thank all of those who are joining. Uh, as the judge indicated, I'm the president of Farm Action. <clears throat> we look at the broader impact of market concentration in the food system. We develop policy recommendations to bring about economic vitality in rural America. Today, consumers are experiencing rising inflation at the grocery store. For us at Farm Action, a contributing factor to the spike in inflation is captured in this recent NASDAQ headline. Who's hungry? Food companies are gobbling up profits. Today, I will be addressing the market and pricing power meat packers have within the protein market. I will be discussing the impact this power has over the farmer, rancher, and the retail grocer and the consumer. I'll be discussing the impact retail grocery concentration has on the issue of inflation and pricing. Economists state market abuses are likely to occur when the market concentration ratio of the top four firms exceeds 40%. This is when four companies control 40% of any one market sector. For instance, the beef market, grain processing, beer manufacturing, and so on. Today, the ratios in nearly every agriculture and food sector are far beyond this point of likely abuses. Beef is at, is at 85%, pork 67%, poultry is 54%, and if DOJ allows the joint venture between Cargill and Continental to proceed with the purchase of Sanderson Farms, the CR4 for poultry will increase to 60%. The acceleration among food and agriculture corporations to grow horizontally, that is to start buying up companies in the same market, you know, beef companies buying out beef companies, et cetera, began shortly after the Reagan administration shifted acquisition and merger reviews at DOJ and FTC to a Chicago School of Economics lens of efficiency. And President Reagan also set aside a 1920s court order that had placed market restrictions on the top five meat packers. Pre-Reagan, the CR4 was around 25%. Four dominant firms only controlled 25% of the market in beef. By 1990, the CR4 in beef was already at 70%. By 2007, it was at 83.5%. And today, as I have said, it's at 85%. Because the CR4 in beef has been at this extremely high level of concentration for about 15 years, many have asked, how can inflation now be blamed on high levels of concentration? Well, it is because the business structure of the horizontal dominant firms had not matured through redefining the meat sector as protein, and they had not advanced vertical control of the supply chain through vertical integration. Vertical integration is when a company buys up or controls links within their own supply chain. To the first point, meat companies to protein companies. In the 1990s, there were pretty much beef companies, pork companies, chicken companies, and so on. Today, 
there are protein companies. For instance, JBS is one of the dominant firms in beef, pork, and poultry, and has invested in alternative proteins, both plant-based as well as cultivated meat. This move by meat packers to buy up and dominate substitute goods eliminates the substitution effect within the market. The substitution effect is when prices rise too high on a particular good that a consumer decides, well, I'm going to buy a substitute good. Price of beef goes up under the substitution effect, then the, then the uh, consumer simply buys chicken. But today, the same companies control both sectors and simply raise all prices, leaving the consumer to simply pay the higher price for protein. And we all need protein. It's not an option not to buy. The second point of market maturity is vertical integration. In the 1980s and 1990s, in the beef and hog market, the dominant firms bought their supply of livestock in mostly an open market through what is often called a cash basis or cash market from independent farmers and ranchers. Today, dominant meat packers control up to 80% of their supply. They either have done this through direct ownership or through forward contracts. Today, cattle producers find themselves in direct competition with the very companies who they depend on to buy their cattle. The ability of the meat packer to hold up the kill of their own cattle or to push them into the market gives the meat packer pricing control at the farm gate as well as the ability to create a choke point in the supply chain, thus giving them a basis for raising the wholesale price the retail grocer is forced to pay and then to pass on to the consumer as a retail price. As these levels of concentration and control over the supply chain have elevated, the understanding and application of basic supply and demand modeling fails to explain the market dynamics of concentrated corporate power and pricing power. What we see are dominant firms exerting their power to extract excessive wealth up and down the supply chain, contributing to inflation. A great case study that exemplifies the pricing power of the dominant meatpacking firms is a single occurrence of a supply chain disruption. Let's look at the 2019 fire at the Tyson Beef Processing Plant in Holcomb, Kansas. On a Friday night, August 9, 2019, a fire shuttered a Tyson beef processing plant that represented about 5 or 6% of beef processing in the U.S. On Monday morning, the beef packers were literally screaming fire, causing retail grocers to make a run on the beef in an attempt to secure the expected Labor Day beef sales. At the same time, beef packers cut the price they were paying cattle producers, using the excuse of lost processing. By August 24th, the result was a 67% spread in what the beef packer paid the cattle producer and how much they charged the retail grocery. To put this in perspective, this spread reflected a 143% increase over the average spread from 20, in 2016 to 2018. What is most telling about the market power, the dominant beef packers, is that the week following the slaughter of fat cattle, Weeks following the fire, slaughter numbers only dropped by a thousand head as compared to the week prior to the fire. In the three weeks that followed the fire, the beef industry slaughtered 5,000 more fat cattle than the three weeks prior to the fire. Yet they had continued to charge retail grocers the higher wholesale prices 
as well as farmers, the lower price for cattle. The reality was the packers had the processing capacity to replace or the elasticity in the market to replace the capacity that was lost at Holcomb. Seldom does anyone profit from a fire. But when you have dominant market power, you can do whatever you want. You can make more profits during a supply chain disruption, as evidenced in this case study, than you can when everything else is running smooth. The pandemic has given the dominant firms the excuse to test their pricing power. And as a result, market concentration has contributed to the spike in inflation. In spite of the fact the pandemic we absolutely agree that the pandemic has brought about increased costs of goods, supply chain disruptions, labor outages, and market shifts between industrial beef markets and retail markets. Meat packers, however, meat packers are declaring record quarterly profits in spite of these pandemic impacts. Marfrig, a Brazilian company that owns controlling interests of U.S. national beef, reported in their first quarter of 2021 earnings statement that the industry was experiencing record profits for the first quarter, quarter. Attributing this record of profitability on factors such as a robust economic relief package and the fact that the cost of cattle was down 4.8% compared to the same period in 2020. While cattle prices have gone up since the first quarter of 2021, the big meat packers have not slowed their appetite to garner record profits from the market. In their 2021 third quarter earnings statement, JBS South America, Brazilian company, reported its U.S. beef earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization had increased 220% over the same period the previous year. 220% increase. JBS closed out 2021 U.S. beef with an increase in cost of goods of 15.1% but their increase in gross profit uh, was 99.7%. This is the number that holds the truth about the impact concentration has on inflation. The scenario is playing out at all of the dominant beef protein firms. Here's a quote. We delivered double digit sales and earnings growth during the fourth quarter and full year, and our performance was supported by our diverse portfolio of protein and continued strength and consumer demand for protein, said Donnie King, president and CEO of Tyson Foods. We delivered a record performance in our beef segment. Again, a NASDAQ April 2021 headline sums up the power of concentration in all the U.S. supply, food supply. Who's hungry? Food companies are gobbling up profits. The failure of our U.S. government to rigorously enforce antitrust laws has ushered in these monopolies. Our government has also advanced the growth of dominant firms like JBS, Tyson, Cargill, Smithfield, and the others through favorable trade deals, propping up their sales through direct procurement, allowing foreign imported meat to be labeled product of the USA and other agriculture marketing services for the benefit of dominant firms. We strongly support government taking steps to safeguard the marketplace. We support strengthening the Packers and Stockyards Act, enduring ending fraudulent labeling of foreign beef, Returning to review of mergers and acquisitions with a lens to impact on competition, not just efficiency. We support DOJ and FTC being able to look back at previous acquisitions and mergers. Let's determine if the promised efficiencies that was given uh, by those companies in order to merge, uh, that they have been realized. I want to thank you for this opportunity. To us, this issue 
of being free from monopoly power is a critical issue of our time. The control of a few corporations have over our country and our economy is a threat to our democracy. We believe history clearly demonstrates that the spark of the revolution that brought us our independence and our freedoms was an action by the patriots when they threw the monopoly East India Company's tea in the water. I thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Maxwell. That sets the table quite well for our uh, next uh, guest, who will have a slightly different perspective uh, on what's going on in the market. Allow me to introduce Mr. Mark Dopp. Mr. Dopp is the Chief Operating Officer and General Counsel for the North American Meat Institute. He previously served as its Senior Vice President of Regulatory Affairs. In his role, Mr. Dopp oversees policy development and represents industry views on significant regulatory, scientific, legislative, and communications matters. Before joining NAMI, Mr. Dopp worked at Hogan and Hartson, now known as Hogan Lovells, where he was active in areas of food and agricultural law on behalf of many clients, including domestic and foreign corporations. I particularly love the fact that Mr. Dopp began his career at my old haunt, the United States Department of Agriculture's Office of General Counsel. Mr. Dopp received his Bachelor of Science in Agriculture degree, Agricultural Economics to be specific, from the University of Wisconsin, and his Master of Science from Michigan State University, also in Agricultural Economics. His law degree is from the University of Missouri. So, Mr. Dopp, the floor is yours. Thank you, Judge Vaden. Good afternoon, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Uh, as the judge mentioned, I'm the Chief Operating Officer for the North American Meat Institute. For those of you who don't know much about the Meat Institute, it is the National Trade Association representing meat and poultry processors, primarily meat processors uh, in the United States and in North and South, throughout North America, frankly. Uh, our members are the largest of the large, the Tysons, the Smithfields, the JBSs, to the smallest of the small. Uh, I think our smallest company, member company, is a small jerky manufacturer in Oregon who I think has about five or six employees. So we run this, we run the spectrum in terms of size and who we represent. I'm going to ask Ryan to help me out with the slides here. I've got a few slides that accompany my remarks uh, Trust me, if I if I try to do this myself, it would not go well. So, Ryan, if we could move to the second slide. I'm going to touch base on the topic today is inflation and beef. And uh, I've I listened with some interest to what, what Joe Maxwell had to say. There are a couple of things that he said with which I agree. And there are several things, of course, that I probably don't agree. Uh, so let's talk about this. Let's look at it this way. I'm going to talk about what didn't cause inflation, what caused what, what we will point to as causing inflation, and then a couple of the uh, regulatory or legislative proposals that are out there that we think would be adverse to uh, the meat and poultry sector and, fr frankly, the entire uh, supply, the beef supply chain. So let's talk first about what did not cause inflation, what is not the cause of inflation in beef prices. It's not consolidation, and we don't believe it's concentration. With all due respect to Mr. Maxwell's remarks, this first chart shows going back to uh, 1994, so that's the past 25 or 30 years, the, kind of the forefront concentration, concentration ratio for beef, for fed cattle in particular, has toggled between 80 to 85 percent. 
and candidly, I was part of that. I worked on a couple of the mergers back in the late 80s um, where uh, ConAgriBot, Swift Independent, et cetera. Uh, those of you who are in the, in the audience who may remember uh, or know Jim Rill, Jim Rill, I worked for Mr. Rill back in those days on these deals. And I can tell you that it was a, a challenging, terrifying, but one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. So, Mr. Rill, if you're listening, thank you. But let's look at this. Like I said, the forefront concentration ratio hasn't changed in any meaningful way since at least 1994 and probably before that. Yeah, look at what the beef prices have done and what CPI shows with respect to inflation. It's remained relatively constant as well. It toggles a little bit up and down, but you can't really make any, you can't draw any conclusion or make the assertion that concentration is in any way linked to, 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 to the cost of, to the, to the recent rise in, in, in the price of beef. Second, um, I'd like to point out, you hear on Capitol Hill and the administration uh, talking about consolidation in the beef industry. That's simply not true. There hasn't been a meaningful merger since about 1990, 1991. And in fact, the last time a merger was proposed between two of the big four, uh, between GBS, when GBS attempted to buy a national back in 2008, the Justice Department stepped in and blocked that merger. So to, to somehow to contend that the justice is not active in this area, I don't think is accurate. Let me point, Brian, would you go to the next slide, please? I think this slide tells us a great deal. Much has been made about how the, the forefront concentration ratio has been problematic for the producer sector. But if you look at this, and I apologize, it's a little bit busy. Uh, and by the way, these, this is not our data. This is either USDA data or the margin data is from a very reputable economic firm called uh, Sterling Marketing, John DeLivka in particular. If you look at this, you'll see that this represents, in my view, what we typically talk about when I'm talking about the cow cycle. There are years when the packers make money. There are years when the producers make money. The red lines here are when the cow-calf producers are when their margins are, are profitable and then when they're positive. And you can look and see, obviously, back in 2013, 14, 15, the cow-calf producers were doing exceptionally well, and the packers were getting by. And in fact, in some respects, it was the feedlots who were doing less well. So this idea that somehow, some way. The, producer being, the producers are being downtrodden based on the forefront concentration ratio is not borne out by the data. And Ryan, if you'll go to the next slide, I'd appreciate it. I thought it was interesting. Judge Vaden mentioned Larry Summers. Um, these are, I don't expect you to read all of these quotes. They're, I just pulled a handful from the last several months. Uh, it's interesting that the range, the spectrum, if you will, the range of individuals or entities who are commenting and disagreeing with the Biden administration and those on Capitol Hill uh, who, are, who continue to assert that concentration is the reason for inflation. They range from Larry Summers to the Wall Street Journal, to the Washington Post, to the National Review. You can't find a more diverse set. And this is just a handful of the, of the, of the quotes that we have pulled over the past three or four months. Next slide, please, Brian, if you would. So what has caused uh, wholesale beef, what has caused prices to rise for, rise for consumers? Um, I think it's the answer is pretty simple. I think it's basic supply and demand, coupled with a huge dose of COVID, with a sprinkling of politics. There are those who favor those who are favoring these government interventions. Point conveniently to the fact that the price that cattle producers have received has gone down since 2014, 2015. But if you go back, if you remember the slide before 2015, 2014, 20, no, go back one, please, Ryan. 2014-2015 are when the cow-calf producers were making record profits. That also coincides with when the beef herd, the cattle supply, 
was at its lowest level since 1952 in the Truman administration. In the five or six years since then, um, the, herd, the herd has grown from 88 million head to about 94 million head. It's simple supply and demand. And then COVID hit. So we so if you look at this chart with uh, retail versus wholesale beef prices, I can tell you as somebody who was working for the meat industry back in the spring of 2020, um, that May, June, July window, that three to four, five month window, I've been practicing law now for 38 years. And those were probably the darkest days and most difficult days of that of that 38 year career. Plants were being idled. Uh, people were getting sick. Unfortunately, some of them were dying. Plants were running at 40 to 50 percent of their capacity. Uh, you know, we were talking we're talking about beef, but but in the uh, the hog sector was equally affected. You know, people you probably saw where, where hogs are being euthanized. And it's about one thing. It's about you can have you can have physical plant capacity. You can have a facility that's handled that can handle three to four thousand head per day. But uh, but if you don't have the people to, to to man that operation, that's what we really talk. That's what we're talking about when we talk about operational capacity. It can be the biggest plant on the planet, but there's got to be people there to be able to work it. And that's what happened. That's what you see with this the significant spike in terms of wholesale versus retail prices in uh, in 2020. And then, and then as as the industry worked through the backlog over time, you see where things settled out. And these other spikes are, are commensurate with some of the other variant spikes that we see with respect to Delta, et cetera, over time. If you can go to the next slide, please, Brian. Thank you. This is a this is a chart that talks about um, that shows the, the price that are being the cat the cash price for fed cattle. Uh, because again, we're talking about beef here. Again, record high prices in 2014 when the when the herd size was at its smallest. They, they, it filters down over time as the herd size begins to grow. And I think it's interesting that I read an article uh, just the other day, I think, in fact, two days ago, Cassie Fish, who was a, a market analyst, um, cash, cash, cash cattle prices right now are toggling between $130, $140, hundredweight. A year ago, they were 109 And again, the four-firm concentration ratio has not changed whatsoever. But supply is only part of the equation. Demand is something that, that we need to consider as well. Every economist who has looked at this issue will tell you that demand for beef, demand for meat through COVID, through the pandemic, has been at record high levels. And that's both domestically and with, and, and with respect to exports. And there's a reason why demand was high. The government pumped significant amounts of money into people's pockets. They couldn't travel. They couldn't go on vacation. They couldn't buy cars. So they started to spend money on things like more expensive cuts of meat. From January through October of 2021, there was an additional $3.729 trillion in government relief payments paid to the, to the population. That was That's 3.8 million trillion more than was paid from January through October 2020. And the economic aid and job recovery added an additional $14.3 trillion in personal income in January to October 2021 over that found in January to October 2020. That extra money is what fueled the personal demand. And a lot of people start spending more money on meat products because they can't travel, et cetera. If you could get me the next slide, please, Ryan. I'd like to point to this as well, because you've heard Secretary Vilsack talk about this. You've had you've heard uh, people up on Capitol Hill talk about this. The President Biden has made this, has commented on this on more than one occasion. 
uh, everybody talks about how the, the, the value of the, the producer value of the, cons- of the dollar spent, the consumer dollar spent for, for meat products in particular has gone down. That's true. Uh, but if you look at this chart, which shows the, the share of the retail beef dollar that the producer receives versus the share of the retail beef dollar that the packer receives, historically, the packers have received a considerable, considerably less, a considerably smaller number than the, than the producers received. Uh, admittedly, in January of 2020, and, and when you've talked about the spring of 2020, when we had the COVID, the beginning of the COVID pandemic spike, no doubt that there was a, that, that was inverted. But historically, that's been the case, and we see that that, can, that that now the things are getting back to whatever constitutes normal. That that continues. We're back to what is more uh, historically expected and seen, and I expect that to, to continue as well. And you may ask, well, where is the money going? Well, the short answer, in my view, is it's going to. If, if you think about it, go back to 20, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, you didn't walk into a grocery store and see ready-to-eat meals. You didn't walk into a Whole Foods and see. Uh, you could walk in and get a whole uh, a whole chicken. You didn't have prepared meals. You didn't. All of that, the value is being added elsewhere, probably in the retail chain largely, is my best guess. We don't have that data here, but I believe that to be the case. So this is uh, what I'm getting at is I think I think that the rationale is just the, the reasons why we've seen what we've seen are readily explained by market, market supply and demand forces. And in fact, if you ask... Professor Consor, Professor Coons, or any other um, well-established agricultural economist—they're likely to. They're going to agree with you. We've had this. We've had these issues analyzed. Now, all of this has brought a lot of attention to the industry, and there have been calls for. I think Joe mentioned make, made a passing reference to the Packers and Stockyards Act. Uh, Senator Grassley and Senator Fisher have had a couple bills introduced, and they're still working on a third. Let me just address those two issues, and then I'll stop stop talking and let Sean take over. With respect to the Packers and Stockyards Act, um, it has nothing to do with inflation as far as I'm concerned, because the origins of that rulemaking exercise began in 2010. So while this inflation issue is being used as an excuse to justify those regulations, they're really unrelated. And I want to point out one thing about those about, about those issues. I've been working on this for a dozen years now. The, the linchpin to this whole issue when it comes to PNS is the issue of USDA wishes to repeal, for lack of a better term, the standard that's applicable in a Packers and Stockyards Act case. Eight federal appellate courts have looked at the issue and decided that a plaintiff must demonstrate injury or likelihood of injury to competition to prevail in a PNS case. Eight. Every circuit court from the 4th through the 11th has looked at this issue and come to that conclusion. The most recent case being Terry versus Tyson in 2010. Notwithstanding that, USDA continues to, to want to make to change the regular to change the standard, thinking they can do it by rulemaking. I'm here to tell you right now that if that happens, it's bad. It's both bad law and it's bad policy because what will happen is the alternative marketing arrangements, uh, which Joe would call captive supply, but I would I'll prefer, I prefer the term alternative marketing arrangements because I think it's more accurate. The alternative marketing arrangements, which were the brainchild of producers who came to the packers and said. If, if I come to you with a product or an animal with has with certain characteristics or traits, will you pay me more? That is that has led to, as Joe pointed out, a reduction in the cash and the number of sales in the cash uh, cash market. But it's been to the benefit of the producers, consumers, and packers. And the RTI study from 2007 proves that. If the standard has changed to something other than having to prove injury to competition. 
the Packers will reduce to, they will go from 15 AMAs to one or two or three. And that will be detrimental, not just to the Packers, but also to the producers and consumers. And then lastly, let me turn my attention briefly to bill, the bills that Senators Grassley, Fisher, and others are promoting. Essentially, what those bills would do, and they're opposed, by the way, by National Cattlemen's Beef Association, the Farm Bureau Federation, but they still have life, surprisingly. That bill, in some way, shape, or form, would mandate some X percentage. The original bill had 50%. The second bill has a percentage to be established by the Secretary of Agriculture. It would require uh, packers to purchase on the cash market a specified percentage as set by the Secretary of Agriculture. Um, this, too, is a terrible idea. This is the kind of government intervention in the market that should not be tolerated. And it, too, will be to the detriment, not only of the packers, but more to producers and consumers. Because every time, if I, if I am a packer and I'm required to buy 40% of my, of my cattle in the cash market and I'm currently buying 20, that means I have to tell some producer who wants to use an AMA that I cannot, and he, won't, he or she will not have access to it. So these ideas that are being floated as a solution under the auspices of inflation, like I said, they're bad law and they're bad policy. I might add, I haven't had a chance to read it. I'll sum, sum up with this. I haven't had a chance to read it, but it's just skimmed real quickly through the recently published, I think it was a couple of days ago, SEC proposal on, on uh, that has to do with climate, et cetera. That too could have a similar impact because if you start thinking about the kind of information that has to be provided, um, a packer might decide that they're going to become more vertically integrated because they either can't get the information or they just don't want to have to bother. So with that, Judge Vaden, I will uh, end my remarks and turn it over to you and, and Sean. All right. Well, thank you very much for that comprehensive presentation, Mr. Dobb. And I'd just like to remind our viewers, um, if you have a question, please enter it in the Q&A box, because when Mr. Heather, our next speaker, concludes his remarks in about 10 minutes, uh, then we're going to turn to some discussion, and I hope to get to some of your questions. Our last speaker on today's panel is Sean Heather. Sean is Senior Vice President for International Regulatory Affairs and Antitrust at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. He leads the Chamber Center for Global Regulatory Cooperation, which seeks to align trade, regulatory, and competition policy in support of open and competitive markets. He also oversees the organization's antitrust policy on behalf of the chamber members. He's held a variety of positions during his long tenure at the chamber. He has served in the Congressional and Public Affairs Division and was the head of the chamber's regional office in Chicago. Before joining the chamber, Mr. Heather worked for the Illinois Comptroller and with several political campaigns across that state. He holds both an undergraduate degree and an MBA from the University of Illinois. And Mr. Heather is going to talk about the larger antitrust issues that are emphasized by this debate, which is so far focused just on agricultural issues. Mr. Heather, the floor is yours. Thank you, Judge. It's good to be with you, Mark and Joe, and appreciate the Federalist Society's invitation. I'm dialing in today from the Greenbrier in West Virginia, uh, hence the beautiful drapes behind me. Anybody who's been here knows the floral prints uh, are, are rampant across uh, the property. Um, yes, I'm, I'm not an expert uh, in the ag field specifically, but do spend a lot of time these days uh, on this debate about concentration 
and whether concentration is harmful to the market. And in my brief remarks here, before we open it up to a more conversation-like approach between the three of us, but also with all of you on the line, I want to quickly make three points. One, I want to talk about the myth that is concentration. Two, I want to talk about the distinction between the role of antitrust and regulation, something that I think is often lost in today's debate. And then finally, I want to uh, talk about to the degree to which we want to move down a more regulatory path, uh, some of the dangers associated with that. So when I say that there's a myth around concentration, I think it's been set up well between the two first speakers uh, that there is a debate uh, that is often being put forward by the Biden administration, not just for the ag sector, but for a number of sectors. Last uh, summer, the president issued an executive order on competition. That executive order essentially claims that the entire U.S. economy is overconcentrated, that we have a monopoly problem in America, that every sector uh, is suffering from excessive concentration. Uh, and that executive order has a variety of things that it asks lots of different regulatory agencies to look into and do. Uh, but what it's based on is this idea, again, that we are excessively concentrated. Well, when you actually look at the data, uh, that is not true. The U.S. economy today is no more concentrated uh, than it was in 2002. Uh, if you look at the U.S. census, uh, uh, economic census data that the Department of Commerce collects, there's an economic census in this country every five years. Um, it shows that actually concentration rates across the U.S. economy have been falling since 2007. That was a peak point for us. So you cannot say that the U.S. economy is more concentrated today than it was in the past. Another great data point, when you look at industry after industry, concentration is not persistent. In other words, those industries that are the most concentrated since 2002 have actually been losing their concentration on a whole, while those industries that are least concentrated have actually been gaining concentration. So you see over time, concentration levels moving and shifting and shaping. Finally, I think the most important aspect of the data, it shows that actually where there is concentration in the market, that you cannot directly link that to what happens from a competition standpoint. In other words, concentration levels do not mean more or less competition. And this is a well-known fact for any antitrust economist. Antitrust economists don't worry about industry concentration. They will tell you, you could have an industry that only has two players and it can be highly competitive, or you could have an industry that has eight players and be highly competitive. They look at what is happening with market competition, not industry concentration. And so this debate in some ways is very artificial as to what the CR4 numbers are. And that's why for real antitrust economists, they look at a thing called HHI. Uh, and it's a different metric, uh, which does a better job of trying to measure whether or not concentration potentially is harmful. But even under an HHI metric, you don't have a necessary ability to draw a straight line between whether or not you have market power and that market power is also translating to harm in the market. So some of this debate that we've heard today um, and some of the numbers the chambers put out in a recent study we had commissioned by NERA, which is a leading economic firm, all looks at the CR4 data. And what that shows again is that the US economy is no more concentrated today than it was in 2002 and concentration levels are falling in 2007 but it doesn't necessarily understand the myth that industry concentration is not market concentration. So let's talk about market concentration and the role of antitrust. As I said, the other point I wanted to make was antitrust and regulation are not the same thing. Antitrust is the premise that the markets will self-regulate, that supply and demand will force the markets to an equilibrium that will maximize uh, welfare for the consumer. Uh, and that is the idea that you know, we as a country have decided to build our economy, not having a lot of government intervention, 
to allow the free market to operate. Well, when the free market stops operating, the role of antitrust is to restore market forces. So antitrust is a very kind of narrow tool. And what we see today is everybody wants to say that the problems that they see in the market are an antitrust problem. See, the beauty of the antitrust laws are very simple. One is they're a law of general application. So every industry essentially, save for a few instances where Congress has created an exemption in statute, are subject to antitrust scrutiny. The second basic principle of antitrust is you have to demonstrate harm to the competitive process, which means harm to the consumer. It's not what happens to the other producers that you're competing with. It's not what happens uh, to the people who are supplying you your product. It's not happening what happened downstream in the supply chain. It's how does the actions of the business that is being brought before uh, a judge uh, in, in an antitrust case can demonstrate that the harm is actually harm to the consumer. Um, the third and final principle of antitrust, which is at its core, is that all actions in the market may create some harm to some consumer. So we're not looking to prohibit all harm. We're looking to use what they call the rule of reason to establish whether or not that harm is outweighed by pro-competitive benefits. So all of the debates we've heard here today about what's happening in the market can be evaluated under the existing antitrust laws. Anyone can bring forward a claim because of the law of general application that is antitrust and state that there is harm in the market. They're just going to be asked to show two things. One, that harm is harming the consumer. And two, they're going to have to demonstrate that that harm is greater than any pro-competitive outcome uh, as a result of that conduct. That's what antitrust law is. Much of what we hear today in the debate we've just listened between Joe and Mark and much of what we hear in the debate on Capitol Hill, whether it be this industry or other industries, is people would like the market to do something else. And they often will project political or uh, priorities that we might have as a society that we want out of the market. And when we do that, we don't look to antitrust to resolve that. So we have now people saying, well, we should be looking at mergers and acquisitions as to whether or not there's job loss. Or we have people who are suggesting that there are other kinds of factors that we should be thinking about, not just what's in the interest of the consumer. And so when you start to do that, you're no longer talking about antitrust. You're really talking about the role of regulation. And throughout our history, we have often put regulations in place for certain industries in order to achieve certain outcomes in the market. And as a democracy, the Congress is free to make decisions and trade-offs and say, we're not going to just leave it to the market to allocate resources. We're not just going to leave it to the market to decide something. We're actually going to step in and direct market outcomes. And we're going to do that through regulation. So a lot of the debate that we're concerned with at the chamber is that not every different solution someone has out there to a problem that they think they've identified is one that is for antitrust to decide. It really should be one of a conversation as to whether we want regulation in that space. My last and final point, and then look forward to opening it up to conversation is be careful what we ask for. Uh, recently, I was having a conversation with uh, an office on the Hill, uh, Senate staff, and we were not talking about the agriculture industry. They were talking, though, about concentration. And the example that they gave me was that there's excessive concentration in the casket industry. Uh, and I think it was something like there's only two casket companies in the United States that have about 80 uh, percent of the market. And that's a problem, Sean. You know that, don't you? And I said, actually, I don't know that. I said, um, A, today, um, there's a lot of people who get cremated. Uh, who don't need caskets. Perhaps the reason that there's concentration is that we just don't need as many casket manufacturers today. 
Uh, I said, perhaps we're not living in the 1800s where you needed a pine box manufacturer in every town in America. Uh, and so it makes sense to have fewer pine box manufacturers. And then I finally said, well, do tell me, dear Senate staffer, how many casket manufacturers would you as the government like to have in this great country of ours? Um, and at that point, the Senate staffer stopped for a moment and reflected and said, you got a point. Uh, so I'll end with that, going back to where we started, which is there's a huge debate today as to whether we are more concentrated and that that concentration somehow is harmful. And the answers, I think, are very clear. One, the economy today is no more concentrated than it was in 2002. It's also very clear when you talk about industry concentration, you're not really talking about the state of market competition. And market competition is well safeguarded by today's antitrust laws, which work well when they are applied using that law of general principle, using that rule of reason analysis, and evaluating whether harm is being done to the consumer. The debate we're having today is whether we want to have more regulation, whether it be in this sector or in other sectors, which begins to move us away from an antitrust test into one in which we, as a democratic group of uh, citizens, ask our Congress to empower our regulators to put more conditions on the marketplace than otherwise antitrust uh, would allow to happen naturally. So with that, let me stop and let's open it up for a conversation, Judge. Thank you, Sean. Uh, you took us from the slaughterhouse to the casket. So I think we've gone full circle <laughs> as things go. Well, we've already got some questioners who have put their questions in. Uh, and uh, I'm gonna try to mix those in with two questions that came to my mind as our three speakers were talking. Mr. Maxwell, uh, my first question is is for you, and that is um, there seems to be a debate between you and Mr. Dobb about what the appropriate metric we need to look at is, whether the metric that's driving the market is there are too few uh, meatpacking companies uh, buying up uh, cattle, poultry, uh, on a on a large basis uh, so that farmers have few options uh, to sell. And then on the other side, uh, Mr. Dobbs suggests that, no, the metric we need to look at is how many cattle are out there. And the chart that he put up seemed to suggest that, roughly speaking, uh, the price uh, for protein, as he put it, tended to follow the supply uh, of how many animals were available for that particular type of protein, in his example, beef. Um, how do you, uh, Mr. Maxwell, respond to Mr. Dopp's suggestion that what we really need to look at is not how many uh, packing plants there are, but rather uh, how many cattle there are? Well, I really kind of lean more towards uh, Sean's analysis. I, I don't think it's the exact number. I think for us and uh, the economists we work with, the CR4 or the HHI, uh, we can talk about HHI. I, I don't see a huge distinction between the two, Sean, but perhaps that's for another day. But the the, the thing that matters is is uh, the CR4 is an indicator that there is likelihood of abuse. But then it's how it plays out in the market. You can have two, you can have competition and just two companies, as Sean said. But the question is, are those companies responding within the market so that the market does work. And what we would suggest, they aren't responding uh, in the market uh, and where it, uh, to where it works, that the supply and demand that Mark would indicate uh, is really almost irrelevant. It does not take in, as I said in my comment, the uh, an understanding of the impact of the pricing power or the, vertically, the vertical integration power, the control and the supply chain power that these companies have 
and how they then can exhibit that power in a negative way upon both the consumer and, and upon the producer. Thank you, Mr. Mr. Dobb, I have a question for you. Um, you mentioned a proposal currently floating on Capitol Hill that would require your clients, the meat packing companies, to buy a minimum amount of the cattle uh, that they need to create the beef that, that we eat uh, on the open market. Frequently, uh, we think of transparency as a good thing. For example, when we purchase stocks, we have the Dow Jones and the NASDAQ to look at to determine whether we're getting a good deal uh, uh, for each share of stock that we're purchasing. Currently, most meat packers buy the vast majority of the animals that they slaughter as a result of private contracts between them and their farmer suppliers that are not publicly available and uh, therefore lessens the amount of information that's out there uh, about what a fair price might be. Could you explain to us from your perspective why you think in this case uh, that arguably a bill designed to create greater transparency in terms of the cattle market would be bad for the consumer and not have a positive effect on prices? Yeah, for a couple of reasons. One, so we're sort of talking about two different things a little bit. One, you've got, I'll just call it the Grassley-Fisher concept, whatever that percentage is, right? Um, you are taking away choice, or th that would be the Congress deciding to take away choice. Not only the choice of the packer, but the choice of the producer. Remember, the AMAs originated, they were the brainchild of cattle producers, particularly, who said, if I deliver to, a pa to Packer X, or if I come to Packer X and say, I will deliver you a an animal that has certain characteristics, characteristics or traits, be that... Uh, organic, be that never ever with respect to antibiotics, be it no hormones, whatever the case may be. There are there are a multitude of, of programs out there that have producers and packers working together to deliver a product that the consumer demands. Those agreements, again, what I call AMAs, have flourished. They've grown. That's why we have more transactions taking place involving those AMAs today than we did 20 years ago. It's It's sort of flipped, right? 20, 30 years ago, those didn't exist. And now, now they occupy probably 75 to 80% of the transactions that are out there. But, but the point is, those are agreements between two parties that have come to terms and said, I will deliver you a steer with this characteristic so that you in turn packer can sell it, can kill it, process it, and sell it to Walmart or you know Whole Foods, whomever, to deliver a product that the consumer wants. And that has benefited the producers, the packers, and consumers. And I mentioned the RTI study earlier, that's sort of the definitive work when it comes to AMAs. RTI said that everybody benefits by the use of AMAs. The RTI study said if you reduce the, the use of AMAs, which the Grassley-Fisher bill would do because now I have to buy more cattle on the open market, uh, by say 25%, there's a net, a net welfare loss to all three of the sectors. If you reduce it by 50%, that net welfare loss to all three of the sectors falls even is even greater so it's taking away choice and then I, you were also i think alluding to the uh, bill not the bill, say the bill the provision in the recent appropriations law uh about the cattle contract library if i thought was following your question you know there's a swine contract library and has been used for years or had it's been there for years i should say it hasn't really been used all that much as best i can tell from talking to packers and producers the concept is we should have a similar library for the cattle industry. 
um, you know, that may or may not be a good thing. But here's what I know. All of the complaints about the lack of transparency in the cattle market, if all of the, the people up on Capitol Hill who complain about lack of transparency and price discovery, et cetera, et cetera, they passed a bill, they passed a provision that, would, that directs the Secretary of Agriculture to create the cattle library, but allows the Secretary to bypass the notice and comment rulemaking process. So in other words, if the Secretary of Agriculture wants to do so, he can create a catalog contract library in a black box with no input from the packers. And one of the things that people need to remember when it comes to livestock mandatory reporting, which I helped write in 1999 in a limited fashion, the only people, the only entities who have an obligation to do anything when it comes to LMR and on this cattle contract library are the Packers. We're the only ones who bear the burden of reporting and we report everything. But everybody seems to think it's okay if we have that. If it sounds like I'm complaining a little bit, it's because I am. This shouldn't be done in the dark, I guess is my point. If they talk about transparency, then let's have it be transparent all throughout the program. All right. Well, uh, we've got some great questions that have popped in, and I want to get to a couple of them. We've had some careful listeners throughout the past 50 or so minutes. So I'm going to combine two of the questions because they talk about uh, this interaction and some policy proposals and their legality that uh, Mr. Dopp and Mr. Maxwell have been discussing. So anyone can answer this question. I'm going to throw it out there. But uh, two of our questioners want to know, uh, we've talked a little bit about this Grassley bill, uh, which would mandate that uh, a certain percentage of cattle be purchased on the open market. We've also talked about the proposed change to the Packers and Stockyards regulation, which would change the focus of that from harm to the market to harm to an individual farmer. And you, Mr. Dock, mentioned that eight circuit courts of appeals have held that's a no-go. Our two questioners want to know, if Congress passes that bill that mandates uh, your members purchase a certain amount of their cattle on the open market, and if the United States Department of Agriculture tries once again to change the definition of what's harm under the Packers and Stockyards Act, how legally vulnerable uh, would those two decisions be to a court challenge? I'd like to just say one thing. I, I don't know about the data that Mark mentioned, but since AMAs and the and, and those programs came in, I'll say they're not to the benefit of the producer. We have lost, uh, in, during that time period, we've gone from 300,000 plus hog farmers to 66,000. We've lost a half a million cattle. Herds. Now that's what it is on the ground. The changes that Sean talked about on definition of antitrust, we would agree we want a definition of antitrust, but we want it pre-regulated. We want to go back to a definition of antitrust that is competition. That would be the cases, Judge. That, that's, the, that's what we would ask Congress to do, to go pre-Reagan, to look at competition as the definition of antitrust, as it was since the early uh, 1900s up until Reagan. And that is the way we believe we can restore uh, the system of justice within our economic model. And we believe that that could stand easily stand the test of time. If the Congress acts, it is constitutional. It's been tested pre-Reagan, and that would be our, our approach. Also, USDA has never changed their position on not requiring a need, uh, uh, not requiring a harm of competition uh, as a standard 
uh, for taking a case forward under Packers and Stock here today. It was only the courts. There are four courts, as Sean or as Mark mentioned, that have definitely decided uh, that it requires uh, Packers and Stock Act requires um, a showing of harm to competition. Four courts followed that, uh, those four courts, uh, and uh, it still has not made its way to the Supreme Court. We would love to take this case to the Supreme Court. Well, let me add, um, Judge Vane, I'll try to answer your question, but let me respond real quickly to, to Joe. I mean, the most recent decision, Terry versus Tyson, I mean, my favorite quote of, my, of almost all the cases out there is the tide, the tide has become a tidal wave. And then the court goes on to list all eight, you know, all seven courts that, per, that preceded it. So I guess I'll respectfully disagree. I think you can say with some some degree of certainty that eight appellate courts. But Judge Vane, to your question, uh, do I do I think the, something that do I think a law, if enacted by the Congress that required my members to buy 40% of their cattle, of their fed. And this is, that's the other thing. This is fed cattle only. I mean, they're very targeted here. So I think that a law that would be, that would require my major path. And they're, and by the way, they're also saying, if you have one plant, you're excluded. So multi-plant companies in the fed cattle market have to buy 40% or more any given day. I'm not a constitutional scholar. There are much smarter people than I either on this panel or probably in the audience, but I have serious doubts as to whether that would s survive constitutional challenge. It just, I hate to sound a little bit tone deaf, but I used to say they don't even do that in Russia anymore. And that maybe that's not quite, this may not be quite the right format or climate to say that, but this just seems like something that doesn't, doesn't work. Um, and then with respect to the uh, Packers and Stockyards Act, I think in either case, uh, well, and if you change the, if you change the harm to competition standard, if USDA tries to do that, I mean, it, Joe's worried about vertical integration. If I'm if I'm counsel to a packer, and I'm looking at this, and you strike the harm to competition standard as it has existed, making me putting me at a risk anytime I treat anybody any differently, I'm going to have one or two contracts. And the other thing I'm going to think about doing is I'm going to become more vertically integrated because if I have control of the production, I don't have to worry about an unhappy camper down the road or an unhappy producer rather, you know, complaining, saying that his neighbor down the road got a better deal than he did. If I control the supply, I don't have that problem. So I think people who are pushing for that need to think long and hard about, uh, Sean said it best, what are the unintended consequences of some of the policies and, and proposals that are being pushed out there. And it would seem, Mr. Dopp, uh, that at least in those circuits that have held as a matter of statutory construction that harm to the market is required, uh, that, a, that a regulation can't overcome what the statute was found by a court to require, at least in those circuits. Yeah, and, and just for the record, um, the issue of changing that standard has been considered by the, by the Congress in the past. It was considered by the Senate Ag Committee in 2008 as part of the 2008 Farm Bill and rejected. So I'm, I'm pretty comfortable saying that I believe that that's the standard that will be upheld. Well, let me see if I can get one last question in before we, uh, we have to turn it back over to Ryan. One of our questioners, we have a very broad audience today, uh, references that there has been some settlement activity, both criminal and civil, when it comes to price fixing allegations. Uh, I think they're referring to in the poultry industry. Uh, there have uh, been at least one criminal plea. Uh, there have been a number of indictments, and there's been there's been some s settlements. Understanding, of course, that everyone's innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. 
what are we to make of these indictments and other activity in the poultry sector alleging price fixing uh, when we're thinking about the protein market and the food market as a whole and the fairness of the prices we pay there? Well, to, uh, I will answer that very briefly. One, um, we don't represent the chicken industry, so I'm a little reluctant to dive into what's going on. The only the only criminal case I'm aware of involves a handful of executives in the, in the chicken and chicken business. So I'll just let that go at that. In terms of the settlement and all and the civil cases that are out there, yes, there are cases: chicken, turkey, pork, and beef. And if and I and everybody on this call who's an attorney knows full well that settling the case doesn't mean that you did anything wrong, but Sometimes, and most of the time, it is simply a business decision. I can tell you as somebody who spent almost $2 million challenging Proposition 12 recently in California, the numbers add up pretty quickly. And I can only, I can't even begin to imagine the cost that the companies that we're talking about here are incurring when you're talking about discovery, you know, depositions, document production, everything attended to that. It doesn't surprise me that business decisions are made that yes, we'll settle for this amount of money. Um, it, it's it's frankly, it's probably a wise business decision. Mr. We think Dawson, that just just I want to quickly ask about Proposition Twelve. There's still a cert petition pending on that issue before the Supreme Court that they yes. have not decided, even though it's gone to multiple conferences. Correct. Correct. All right, Mr. Maxwell, your thoughts? Yes, yeah, we absolutely that. agree. We absolutely agree with Mark that the settlements in those cases, uh, especially as it relates to pork. Uh, beef and chicken are business decisions. We believe that the cases are settling. Uh, JBS's last uh, beef case settled for $52.4 million. That was a quarter they made $7 billion. We see that these uh, is a cost of doing business. You can go out and collude in the market. You can inflate the prices. You can take the money out of the consumer's pocket. You can screw the farmer over. And all it's going to cost you is $52.4 billion. It's a business decision in America, and it's just part of the way they do business. All right. Well, um, I'm glad we were able to have some discussion at the end. Thank you to all of our uh, listeners this afternoon. I think we've uh, thrown out the issues, and it's for them to decide who, who, had, who got the best of it. Ron, I'm turning it over back to you. Thank you so much, Judge Vaden. On behalf of the Federal Society, I want to thank our experts for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. And I want to thank our audience for joining and participating. We welcome further feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. As always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming webinars. Thank you for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.